Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Few in Lockdown. And actually, today we're talking to one of the few who is not in lockdown, which is pretty unusual. Hey, Shawnee, how are you, mate? Uh, you know, it's still warm and sunny, but uh, we can't utilize it very much. We're just getting out to exercise as much as we can. But other than that, you know, got to roll with the punches at the moment. I wonder, you know, like there was Spanish flu, there was polio, there was all of these uh, black plague. And I wonder if 200 years from now, someone will listen to this podcast and go, oh, what's lockdown? What's that lockdown thing? <laughs> Sounds terrible. As they have their 200 vaccines and robot nanobots inside their body targeting <laughs> the latest and greatest Ovid. Uh, it's it's going to be an interesting time machine, isn't it? Who knows what's going to happen? I mean, the exponential growth of obviously technology and health and wellness and all that sort of stuff and understanding the physiology of the body and things like that. I mean, can only imagine what they're going to be able to do in the next couple hundred years far out. You won't even have to tune into a podcast. You'll just have your consciousness attached to the the 12G network (laughs) with uh, people of their tin hat still concerned about, well, that's frying their brains. Anyway, let's get out of um, our lockdown and into – well, actually, I guess today's kind of dealing with a fair bit of lockdown pain. He's got a business that's a pretty substantial business, something he's built from scratch. So right there, one of the few. So with no further ado, let's uh, introduce our guest for today's episode, Ben Trin. Hey, Ben, how are you, man? G'day, mate. Good, thanks. Good to meet you. And we'll chat again, Boo, Sean. Great to have you on, Ben. Thanks for coming. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. What I'd love to get an understanding of is uh, there's a little bit of in the research of, of your background there. You know, you've you've had a a bit of a uh, let's call it a illustrious career in uh, entrepreneurialism and starting with a background in a, a certain specialty in the health and wellness space and looking at things differently. I, I, I understand that your background, your stepping into business, it looks like you've taken a bit of a, a different look at things and stepped away from the norm. So maybe. Give us a couple of key points of your journey and what you're actually focusing on now and how you actually got from the norm into, I suppose, the way that you're perceiving health and wellness and, and looking at you know leadership and entrepreneurialism as well. Oh, look, crazy to be sitting here, crazy to be sitting here with you guys and, and chatting. And I think there's just so many layers to your question. My family, classic Vietnamese war escape story, absolutely, you know, lost everything during the war. Grandparents getting on the canoe and sort of just paying 12 bars of gold per person just to get on a canoe. We were one of the lucky families that managed to get everyone out. I remember my grandma saying, I was like, well, where was the canoe going? She's I don't know, just not here, not here into the open ocean. That's really what catalyzed our story and escaping. The guts that would have oh. taken, like- there's 100%. serious courage there. There's your entrepreneurial spark with that decision yeah, that uh, grand and grandpa made. Oh, 100%. And our family actually ran a large business in Vietnam. And it was like my grandma and grandpa are absolutely my inspiration. You know, you know, I, I only know these stories because I, I took my granny away on a weekend. She's 95. She's one of the few women 
in that generation, first thing she did at 70 something when she landed here was teach herself fluent English because she had the forward vision that she wanted a relationship with her grandkids. And I was just blown away by that tenacity. My wife and I took her away for a weekend at the beach and just like got stories out of her. And that was one of them just going, well, where were you guys going? They're just going, oh, it's been a month out at open sea in a canoe the size of a bedroom with 40 people land in Malaysia and they stay there for a few months before they get redeployed to Australia and start from fresh with nine kids and a new life. And that's really informed, you know, my story is very much an, you know, an exposition of that born in Australia. But, you know, I saw my parents, both immigrants, both share that story, meet in Malaysia at the refugee camp, get replanted here. And from that place, you know, my childhood was the ups and downs that come with that. You know, they started a business, went bankrupt, lost everything when I was young. And really from that point was just me working with them, them working three jobs, sacrificing absolutely everything for me to have every opportunity. And, you know, my life was marked by following them on their journey. They would pick me up from school. I'd go clean shops and toilets with my dad while doing, you know, doing assignments, you know, uh, sitting on the floor at shopping centers around Perth, doing that, you know, while they kind of rebuilt things from bankruptcy and watching that. And so I guess that's kind of the catalyst for really challenging me. It was actually you know, to think about the world differently, kind of going, well, we've been given this amazing gift to lose everything, but then redeployed in this country. I mean, seeing my parents look at, you know, hardship as sort of an opportunity to learn and grow and never give up and sacrifice everything in their lives for me to have every opportunity. So that's really that starting point. From there, to answer your question a bit more, when did healthcare, because they're like, pick the most secure job industry you can think of. And they're like law, engineering or healthcare. I went with healthcare because I really like working with people what I did love, and I ended up in physiotherapy because I love sport, I love footy, I love everything sport related. You know, really from that point, what I loved about being a physio, which I still love today, is sort of like a common thread in my life. Is I love sitting down, understanding people's problems and their challenges, and synthesizing a, the most efficient and expedient pathway through said problems toward an outcome. And that's effectively what a good practitioner, health professional does. You know, they sit down, they hear your challenges, often in the most difficult times in your life where you've come in with an injury, you can't walk, you're scared, you're frightened. They sit down, they listen, and then they find a pathway through for you. And then they hold your hand and journey alongside you through that path. And that's what I loved about being a health professional. But then I realized the more things I learned about other things, I could do that in other ways. And so effectively what we do now as a business, we are a healthcare business, but I get to do that for other health professionals, you know, in my employees. And we also have partners who own equity in our businesses for them as well and help them get to the path that they want to get to with other skills that I've attained along the way. So I think that's it in a nutshell, you know, in a really overly simplistic um, summary. I mean, that shows you clearly the story of, of your grandparents, that courage and determination. I think there's a, so many uh, people in Australia that just have it really bloody easy, you know, and they didn't have those challenges to overcome and lose everything and then to come to a new country and basically do whatever it takes to make ends meet to get back on your feet again. You know, that's, it's hugely inspiring to hear any of those stories of, you know, grit and determination. And you can clearly tell that, you know, where you're at now is a true reflection of the impact and, and influence they've had on you. So as you said, there's the physiotherapist or a chiro or a GP or whatever. You end up sitting down with somebody, you listen to their challenge, and then you work with that one person to make a difference. What, what point did you change that and think, well, I love doing that, but if I actually scale myself, so there's, I've got more people delivering that one-to-one, you know, support and, and same thing. When did that change for you? Yeah, great question. 
the benefit of a healthcare degree is you're super, you're super tight knit with your group of friends. And I had a really close group of friends and straight after graduating, we would catch up very regularly for dinners, for beers, um, and just talk about life and what was going on. And there was this just common thread of everyone feeling a little bit disillusioned and probably a bit frustrated personally, although they liked the work. Back then, you know, over nearly 11 years ago now, the industry was a little bit different. It was highly fragmented, dominated by a lot of small businesses. And the key mark of a small business is you've got a really entrepreneurial, great person. It's really nimble running it. But the challenge is they're sort of stretched too thin. You know, they're sort of having to be in our context, treating patients all day, but then also a bookkeeper, a HR manager, an accountant, and a marketing person, technology, CTO, whatever, all these things that are actually full-time jobs <laughs> in themselves. And But that kind of produced this situation where a lot of the employees often unintentionally end up neglected. And I kind of just listening to my mates' challenges, problems, and frustrations, the kind of carer in me was kind of like, what can I do to make my mate's life better? You know, like, how can I help them? Purely accidental, really. It was sort of a few of them, us catching up and going, oh, how cool it would be if we worked together and, like, someone could take care of all that stuff so we could focus on what we love, which is taking care of the patients and innovation and, and building relationships. And I kind of just had that light bulb moment one night when I was working late with my boss um, at the time and coming out at, like, 8 p.m., Looking across the room, I actually just, I walk past his door, I peer through and I just see him in tears and I knock on the door and I go, oh, you know, is everything all right? And he's sort of like, oh mate, treating patients all day, admin are fighting, one of them threatened to leave, you know, IT issues. And my wife just called to say she's got cancer. He's like devastated. And he's like, can you just stay back and just help me out so I can get home? I'm like, mate, of course, do whatever. And while I'm staying back, I'm like sorting out the IT stuff. I'm going, well, here's this guy who's actually just a great guy I, and like great intentions but just stretched too thin and trapped in his business effectively incapable of living in alignment with his intentions you know having the impact that he wanted and I just thought if someone could take care of this stuff so he could do that that would be the answer caught up with my mates the next week for coffee and just said hey what if I did this stuff which in my head was just bookkeeping and HR and you guys can then work work together and you get to focus on patience and being innovating and trying new things. And they're like, that's great. That was the moment that catalyzed it and they all loved it. And so, you know, I ended up pursuing that dream going and, and trying to learn these skills that were the back end skills really out of an attempt to serve them and help them get to where they wanted to go. There's always a business in boring, isn't there? Like, you know, admin's admin, yeah? Like, I know some people get excited by it. For me, it's like, yeah, one of those things that just does my head in. There's always value in that, right? Yeah. And people yeah. underestimate the value of being organized, of having a structure that just allows them to generate income on their skills. It's like a practice model, right? That's hard work. Like it's just, it's two jobs. And the value you bring with the structure you've had is incredible. I mean, it's it's so liberating for a professional just to be able to walk in, walk out, right? And you've nailed it there, Boo. Like it's the small things that are unsexy, but they're actually the foundation that you can build on. For my boss, as an example, then he's like basically built a house on sand, you know, it's like sinking and he's trying to build up, you know, build more things, hire more people, you know, like do more marketing, but this, the place is sinking. So just building on top. And it was sort of like, well, no one person can do that and build the foundations. And it's the small unsexy things that are boring, you know, uh, that actually enable the foundation for the house to be built taller and bigger and wider. 
I took great joy out of that, you know, taking on that and, and seeing it mean my mates could do more with their lives and pursue their dreams, you know, and that, that was really the inception of, of the business, you know, at that point. One of the things that we observe often with the few, I think, is that every single person that's come on to the few and, and uh, that we've had an awesome conversation with has had a focus on others. It's a focus on service. It's a focus on making an impact or changing lives or, or doing things that are more selfless than selfish. And and it's it's great to, again, hear that from you. You, you were looking at people's pain points and how do we take away those pain points and, and what do we do? And I know in doing some of the, the background research to get a bit more of understanding of what you do, you know, where you're at, what your journey was, you talk about some of the entrepreneurial qualities that you feel people need to have in business to really create a successful business. You know, what do you believe are those entrepreneurial qualities that people need to develop and grow a successful business and not kill themselves in the process? Because you just figured this out as you went, Ben, right? Yeah. And I think in some sense, you know, I remember sitting down with my folks and just being so stressed about it going, look, I want to start this thing for my mates. You know, I sat down with them going, because there was a business on the market for sale for like 10 grand and I only had five saved. I needed to borrow five from them. And I was like, here's the thing. I know you've sacrificed everything and lost everything uh, for me to have a stable life. I'm not going to do that. We did just come out of bankruptcy. <laughs> but um, I think I want to start a business and start a big lease and risk everything again. They were just like, oh, you know, we, we've got, we'll support you no matter what, which is just absolutely yeah, mind blowing. So in that sense, it was weird. Like I had that ability to take risk because I felt they were always like, oh, you can just always move back home, you know, whatever, if it doesn't work out. So it was like working it out on the fly. That was, um, you know, a big part of a part of my motivation there. To your initial question, Sean, on, you know, thinking about, you know, what attributes make an entrepreneur successful. I mean, there's so many layers um, to that question. I think I would, and, I, and my answers have probably changed depending on the, the stage of life that I'm in. But probably if, I, if I'm broad about it, I'd say number one, it's humility. And I, and I mean that in the aspect of, the ability to be self-aware and reflect, fail fast and learn from mistakes. And those are like just throwing things out there. But self-awareness requires discipline, you know, in the small things, you know, which we were talking about actually requires you to stop, pause, reflect, meditate, silence and solitude, whatever it is, and actually define what's going on in your world so that you can actually learn from what's happening around you. If you don't have that humility to recognize that you don't know it all yet, you know, you're just going to keep keep failing in the same way. And, you know, it also helps you count the cost of what, what it is to continue going. So I think that's the, probably the first thing I would look for. And that dovetails, you know, a bit into number two, which is sort of, I would say, like resilience, you know, and grit, which we talked about. And I think, you know, it's hard these days because hardship and suffering get, get a bad shtick because I think we've, for in a lot of essence, success is defined as your ability to avoid as much suffering as possible. You have the most convenient house in the most convenient location with the most comfortable stuff. I mean, it was crazy. I was having a bitch the other day about oh, having to wait a bit too long for my Uber Eats order to arrive, you know, and then, and then he left the bag at the street instead of at my door. And I'm oh, you know, like going, oh, what's happened to me? You know, like, you know, but, you know, in some senses, I kind of like the idea of we're so fortunate in Australia, our life's pretty comfortable. We're actually choosing to do those small, hard things so that we can build resilience, you know, like I do. And so I think that resilience attribute is something you definitely need because you're never going to get it right straight away. An example of that in my world is I take a cold shower every morning, even though I hate it and I don't want to, just so I can learn how to make hard choices and push through something that's good that I hate. 
And probably the third thing I'd probably say is clarity combined with action and the willingness to be adaptable. So like you can't steer a parked car. So like often people just stay in analysis paralysis, but also clarity in the sense of, oh, I actually have a somewhat fuzzy vision of what I want to achieve. I'm passionate about it enough to take a chance and, and fight for it and keep going and sort of willingness to be adaptable along the way. Momentum um, is, a, is a powerful strategy in itself, isn't it? Just keep going and you'll, you'll, you'll bump into this and you'll bump into that. And yeah. I like, you know, I love the analogy around uh, a river, right? You, you want to be the water, not mm. the rocks. And uh, so, many great, people, yeah. so many people spend all the time figuring out where all the rocks are and it's like, well, don't matter. They're there. Just, just be water, man. Flow. We've talked a lot about, you know, the, the positive things and the, the journey and the positive influence you've had in your background, your, from your family and your upbringing. Tell us about a, a moment or a couple of moments where maybe you wanted to throw it in. You're like, this is too freaking hard. I'm over it, which I think we all as entrepreneurs get to plenty of times. But, you know, what's a situation that may have happened that triggered that? And, and how do you pull yourself back out the other side, get back up and start swinging again? Oh, so many. <laughs> yeah, uh, the last two years, <laughs> COVID, <laughs> um, like every day for the last two years. No, I think people think, oh, yeah. the hard part's starting. It's never ends. It's just every level there's a different problem. Tell us about the bad days. Oh, look, there's so much to learn from the bad days. And it's weird because I'd say you wouldn't choose it, but you wouldn't change it because it sort of defines who you become. And and, and I almost say there's kind of two bad things. You know, there's sort of the massive events, you know, like that happened, sort of the, the earthquake storm style bang. But there's also just the small hard things that eat away and, and put you in a rut, you know. And I think that in some senses, the latter is often harder because it's harder to verbalize and share with others how to break out of those ruts and those plateaus. But I'd, I'll probably I'll sh- I'll share a bit of both. But I'd say the first thing that kind of, entered my mind as you said it was probably about four years into the business we were sort of growing the classic growing broke i mean i used to hear people say growing broke and be like that's impossible like only an idiot grows broke like how do you do that you're growing so how do you go broke (laughs) but it was just growing very fast with absolutely no foundation by you know absolute luck and 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 you know probably at the time i didn't recognize it as luck but you know we had a lot of momentum you know as you say boo like and things are just growing so we went from like in our first, it was just like me and one or two other employees. And it was sort of in the first two years, we started as clinics. So it was sort of one clinic. Then by the end of the first year, we were three. And then by the end of the second year, we were seven. And then it was sort of like suddenly we got like nearly, you know, 70, 80 staff by, you know, and a hundred odd staff by that time, like sort of six years ago going, what am I doing? I'm still the same guy I was sort of four years ago, same goals, but this thing's just gotten out of hand and it's bigger. I didn't know anything about finance or accounting or operations. And, you know, really the business was teetering on the edge of insolvency, you know, at, at one point. And I remember it hit me in a moment because I was sort of growing faster than the burn was happening. This was sort of, yeah, six, seven years ago now. And I, I'd just gotten married. I'd arrogantly bought a nice house. I'd arrogantly convinced my wife that she didn't need to work because I'm awesome and I got this all sorted. <laughs> and we just had our first son and she was like, really? So you, I don't want to, you don't want me to work? I'm cool. Like I'll just stay. So she left to a job she loved. You know, at the time it didn't work out with where we were going and what was happening. So yeah, taking care of this baby. And I remember going on this uh, holiday in Sydney and coming back on the plane going, you know, I feel like I should build a bit of a spreadsheet and see how we're doing financially because it feels like we're really big but I still feel this really awkward tension with money in the bank. Um, and so, you know, I just worked out how to do a cash flow model 
built something and then realized this can't be right. Landed next day, booked it with my accountant and he's like, yeah, this is pretty right. Like, you know, <laughs> at the time we didn't even have a bookkeeper. I was sort of doing, and you know, there was just this sinking moment of, oh my gosh, like I have totally potentially stuffed this for my closest mates who trusted me to do the back end. That was like my only job. And I had to go through a real process. And I remember going home saying to my wife, like having to apologize to her, frankly, which was massively at that time really humbling. And she just remember her looking at me in the eye and going, holding my baby. And I'm going, look, I think we're on the board of insolvency. I've decided I don't want to fire anyone because it's not their fault that I've stuffed up. I said, I'm not going to pay myself for an indefinite period of time because we can't afford to if we keep everyone. And so we've got zero income and just our savings and you've just left your job and we've just got this big mortgage. So sorry. <laughs> and, um, I remember her just looking at me, tears in her eyes. She just walked out of the room, didn't say anything, sort of came back five minutes later and was like, I'll forgive you. Just get on with it. Get on with what you got to do. Her willingness to forgive me and just let give me the freedom to move on and get it sorted and start working 16-hour days again. And I had to go and apologize to every every one of my mates, you know, all our staff. And I did that over like a week. I just had 40 meetings. People who'd left other jobs to join this company, they didn't know I wasn't paying myself. I didn't tell them that because that's obviously awkward. But I was sort of like, you know, the culture's weird. We're tight on cash, you know, all this stuff. So that was a real like turning point of I really want to give up. And I think in a sense, what kept me going was my wife and her willingness to forgive me, but also I did this process thinking everyone's going to quit because they're going to jump ship, right? They've just quit their jobs to join this innovative business and it's not what it is. Um, I actually got all these emails from my staff, like encouraging me, just being like, thank you so much for being honest and being vulnerable and apologizing and committing to make it right. It takes a lot of guts to do that. Like I just, my inbox was flooded with encouraging emails from staff who I thought were sure going to quit. And we didn't lose anyone uh, in that period of time. And that really humbled me and kept me going and kind of took me out of my arrogance and in, into eating some humble pie. That's probably the, the main moment that came to mind as you sort of asked that question. Powerful yeah, moment though. You would, you would have learned yeah. a lot about life and integrity in that moment, I would imagine. Like, oh, like it's so much. You, you, life, you, you hear the words, but you just lived it. <laughs> yes, yes. That's exactly right. You know, you can say the words, but you don't really live it until it costs you something, right? You know, the easy path is fire six people, which at the time we sort of, 70, that's 10% of your workforce, you know, and they're all mates. So it's like really awkward, you know, and it forced me with my back against the wall to build proper systems, learn everything, you know, rebuild. We basically rebuilt the foundations from that, catalyzed from that moment in collaboration with my mates who helped me, you know, gave me grace and actually sat down and like, we're, we're with you. You know what I mean? Even though they really didn't have to be, <laughs> you know, I really stuffed it up. But that's showing your integrity as a leader. Right, that, well, I think one of the key leadership traits that is missing a lot is the ability for people to be vulnerable and to actually say, you know what, I've stuffed up. I'm going to do do everything I can to make it right. To you know, apologise for the situation or, or for, but it's then from that point on, it's all about your action. It's how you show up. And I think by the sounds of it, it's literally flicked a switch in you, and you've made that conscious choice not to shut it down, not to sack six or seven people or whatever. You've got, you know what. I've got to own this. I've got to own it fully. I've got to communicate it to them, to everybody. And then my actions are going to speak louder than my words. I'm just going to make this thing happen. Oh, totally. How long did it take you to pull it back out and kind of right the ship, so to speak? Oh, mate, it was. And that's, that's true on many layers because it was a personal failure as well with my family. And it was a real, you know, corporate failure at the time for me with my mates who trusted me. 
And you're right, the apology was just empty words and I didn't expect it, but I had a plan and I, you know, I'd run the research on it and said, look, I know you don't, you know, you have no right to trust me right now, but we've got to kind of, I'll execute on this. And as we keep delivering, you know, I'll rebuild that trust. Well, it took me, I can't remember exactly how long, it was at least a year, or maybe six months to a year, we're just eating at savings. And um, I actually remember though, vividly, you know, one of those moments burned in your memory, the, the day that the new bookkeeper and accountant said, oh, we can pay you again. We had like $260 in our bank account, the wife and I. <laughs> and it was just like, oh, so I was like, oh my gosh. Like I was- <laughs> Like owning an events business in COVID, mate. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, mate. It was and it, the, the, it's so stressful. Uh, it, it traumatized me. Like it changed me as a person um, and did teach me a lot. And you're so right about vulnerability. Like it really takes courage. It's easy to just say sorry, but then to live it and own it and actually face the humiliation of saying sorry to the people you've hurt face-to-face, not like in a text message or an email, really changes you for the better, you know, as a person. So tell us some of your uh, survival techniques for COVID. And nothing, I guess, tests a business more than a crisis. And and no doubt you've, you had your moment there four years in, you're moving into sort of seven, eight years, everything's starting to look rosy and uh, thanks for coming. Here's COVID. Uh, talk talk <laughs> oh, us mate, through how COVID. entrepreneurs deal with external crisis that they can't control. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading the other day about complicated organizations versus complex environments in organizations where complicated is linear and predictable and sort of you can plan, but it's hard. I, I would say now our team is sort of like climbing a mountain. You know, that's what we, we were. We saw the goal and we were just climbing it as fast as we could. And it's hard, but in a different way, you can sort of see the peak and where you're going, you can predict it because it's like visible. But COVID and, and unknown crisis really flips the environment from complicated to complex where it's a lot more chaotic, there's many inputs, there's stuff changing every day, and you've really got to make decisions really quickly. So I kind of said to our team, you know, to survive in that complex environment, the main thing is get information as quick as possible, but make the best decision you can based on what's in front of you, because no decision is actually worse. Having no decision and being in paralysis is actually worse. And so when COVID struck us, I was grateful for the team. I remember flying over, we all met centrally, all our kind of managers in person, which is absolutely nuts to be able to do that. And at that point, we all kind of agreed on sort of 80% plan based on the very limited information that was in front of us, but we just went and executed and pivoted every day. I'd say almost surviving COVID is a partially going, okay, how adaptable can I be and how quickly can I take on information and just take almost a bit of risk um, every single day? If you keep doing that and survive of adrenaline, you end up in a rut um, very quickly. And so I really learned, you know, we need to actually change our rhythms to get out of our rut. And that's been hard because a lot of the way our company operated before was we're very relaxed with annual leave, take what the leave you want, and people would often regulate themselves traveling. But I don't know if you guys found this, but people were just accruing annual leave because no one wanted to take leave. And then everyone's working really hard and in volatile situations and everyone's getting tired and hitting this rut. And we almost have this reverse problem where now everyone's just crashing and tired. And it might be hard for you to get long breaks, but you just need to have a little bit of a break and change your rhythms. And so my wife and I, we kind of re-engineered our life under the new normal. You know, we, we're doing a lot more shorter breaks, more adaptable throughout the day even. You know, I do, I'm doing a lot more meditation, a lot more running and exercise, you know, a lot more journaling and quiet time, waking up earlier, changing things up. So 
Yes, I think for COVID, I would just say, number one, be adaptable, get information as quick as you can, but don't hold too long on on that information because it could be irrelevant tomorrow, but then change your rhythms so that you can actually sustain in that sort of environment. So I was saying where complicated is like a mountain, complex is more like being in a storm in a boat. And the expression that I used with with my inner circle group is be realistic but optimistic, right? So don't be all like, yeah, this will just go away. It's all fine. It's living in denial and be all like overly optimistic. But also don't be overly pessimistic. This is going to destroy everything. It's wrecked our whole business and things like that. The shifts that I saw and the pivoting of into different models or in different ways of delivering services that I saw that came out in that you know, three to six months after we had to do the same thing running in a, you know, a business that runs events every year. Same thing a couple of weeks ago in Darwin, never had a lockdown ever. Locked down the day before we had our three-day event with 75 people flying in from all over Australia. So they'll have to turn around and go back, right, which was painful. And we had to run it the next week. So I stayed there longer and ended up running it from my mate's restaurant up there because we didn't have the venue anymore and we had you know 75 less people. But the whole thing is about how quickly can you assess, as you said, the information and then adapt You have to be able to adapt. You have to say, okay, I'm going to go back to what I did when I started the business. I have to be nimble. You talked about, you know, in Australia, us being quite comfortable. And if your food's 10 minutes late, you know, know, it's like first world problems. But the thing is that if we delay that shift or that change and don't get the data fast enough, we can't make a, a decision. And again, as you said, no decision is still a decision. The decision to do nothing is still a decision. So each decision is going to have a consequence. As long as you decide to do nothing rather than just do nothing. (laughs) If it's educated, look, I'm not going to change anything because based on the information I've got, but most of the time, based on the information, you're going to have to change something and you've got to get back to those ground roots days of, of when you first started a business and go, I've got to become bloody nimble again and flexible and just do what it takes to make it happen rather than this maybe been this comfortable position that's kind of been created over a few years if you've been in business for a few years. I think that's something that, that I saw the biggest impact was those that changed and adapt very, very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even on that, well, something we've done that's really been helpful personally has been realizing this is a long thing. At the beginning, it was unclear if it was going to be short or long, but we read this great book called Do Hard Things and we were just going, well, doing a lot of small hard things builds your resilience when volatility hits. And so we kind of re-engineered, like we started intermittent fasting, doing the cold shower thing, you know, those small little going for that run when it's cold and raining, but actually those hard things in the period where there's some sort of lull or stagnation means when the crisis did hit, we just had more resilience for making hard choices and actually working through the normal volatility that has become the world right now as it is. As you say, it's challenge, like when you're building a muscle, you're going to get stronger, you're going to have more stamina. If you're not building that muscle when it comes to doing things and everything's all, you know, fluffy and like you're rolling around in a bloody bubble wrap ball or something everywhere, when something happens, it's going to knock you for six. As humans, I think innately we need to have challenge in our life because that is where we grow. One thing I like too is the fact that you shifted the time frame. And we had a, a podcast recently with someone who's stuck on basically an island down near Antarctica. And he said, we don't count down to when the boat's coming because it may not come for another week or another month because of the weather and stuff. He goes, we count up. Right? So we changed the perspective. So if you count down, it'll send you mad because if it didn't come at that time, you get let down. So if you're thinking this thing's going to go for three months and it goes for two and a half years, you're going to have a really hard time after that three months. But if you say, look, what if this was going to go for longer? What if this was going to go for another year or more? 
how would I look at that situation then? What would I do differently? What different habits and patterns would I do? And that's very much a, a, you know, a very important point that you pointed to, Ben, is the concept of doing things that are hard that you find hard. You know, I started intermittent fasting four and a half years ago, still doing it now. Only in the last four months, I moved basically to be vegetarian, predominantly even vegan now. And that's something I never thought the words would come out of my mouth six months ago, let alone that. But that was initially very quite hard, but now it's not. And the thing was same thing coming back from a, a spinal uh, surgery last year, having to do rehab. I did it. I did it for every every day for like 182 days. Then I managed to get back into running again, and, and it started to focus on my times. Now I would get faster over that certain distance, and all these things are a challenge for me. It's like how do I get that little bit extra challenge? What, what's what's that next thing? And slightly different analogy, but the, but the um, the concept of having something to look forward to, whether it's a, you know, a Zoom dinner with your friends if you're in lockdown and you've get, you know, we did the cards against humanity game a few times with a few friends of ours on, on the Zoom and stuff. Or if you can travel, booking a holiday or, or something and having these things ahead. And it could just be small things. It could be a, a date night at home with your wife or your husband or your partner or something, or it doesn't matter what it is. I think that's a big part of keeping people positive particularly when you're going through hardship is you've got to have, and this is one of the mentor about 15 years ago taught me, he said, always have stuff to look forward to because it makes you more content in the present. And so that's, a, I suppose, an extension of what you were saying. I've got this podcast, yeah, Sean, just gives me something to live for every every few weeks. I know I'm getting on here with you. <laughs> going to have a, have a meaningful chat. Hey, Ben, I have this, the acronym that the military gave me. It's called VUCA. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environment. So as an entrepreneur, give us your top tips for dealing with volatility. Yeah, great, great question. I guess an extension of what we were talking about because this this environment is very volatile. I'm hardly an expert in volatility because I probably didn't appreciate how steady state our society was pre-COVID until now, (laughs) until like the last two years. Yeah, number one, I would say it starts before the volatility which is what we were just talking about, in living in a way that you know that you can handle volatility so that when it does come, you know what you're doing. Be conservative, have, have yeah, 100%. a buffer. Yeah, 100%. Like, have a, you know, the basics of having a buffer, that's the financial margin. But actually what people often neglect, I've found in talking to our managers, is actually having time margin, discipline built in. So like I was saying to our full-time managers, you know, most of them work to 100% because there's guilt if they're not busy. Actually, your job is to have 80% booked out, leave a 20% sort of unplanned margin fund in your time. And it's okay if nothing pops up, but in a fast growth business, nine times out of 10, something will pop up. At least then you're not going from 100 to 120%. You're going from 80 to 100%. You're more clear-headed. You're more focused. You know, you're able to have the margin in your world. And I was saying we'll hire if you need that extra space. But most of those kind of personality type A actions, they don't tell me that they're overwhelmed working at 100%, 120%. Honestly, have you ever had a week where you actually had that 20% of the time free? It never happens. And so if it's never happening when you're allowing a 20% buffer, what's happening when you don't allow a 20% buffer? You know, like no wonder people are so, as you said, they type bloody get things. They're never going to tell you they're overwhelmed until they crash and burn. Yeah. Because of that, you actually have to build with discipline structure to create that. So I'd probably say it starts being proactive first with that. So, you know, so my wife and I, we've got a rule when that insolvency thing happens. She's like, we created some clear pre-decisions. So I like to say it's autonomy within boundaries. I'm an entrepreneur. I don't like restrictions, but we needed a fence. 
it's like the three-way forecast in our business for cash. It's a fence, you know, and like it's a fence so that I can play up to the fence and really push the boundaries. But if I didn't have a fence, I'd run onto the road and get hit by a car. You know, that's really what I would do. So I think it's like actually building in structures to facilitate the behavior in the lifestyle I want that creates 80%. You know, I don't work on weekends. When I travel, I'm always back by the weekend, even if I have to travel again on Monday, again, that extra flight. Just little pre-decisions when we're in the right state of mind that preserve that 80-20 because there's always infinite work in a business, you know, a fast-growing business. So I'd say dealing with volatility starts with that proactive aspect. And I do that with my spouse. We do it every year. We change it depending on the stage of life. And, and um, so we do things that we, 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 you know, we'll get babysitters booked in advance for the year so we know when our date nights are, you know, stuff like that. But then in the moment, I think it's actually quickly adapting to switch your headspace that you're playing a different game when the volatility happens. And so how I tend to do that is quickly recognizing that it's a volatile moment. Usually I'll pause and I'll you know, take a breath, meditate, whatever, so that I'm not hyped up in adrenaline and making bad decisions. And then I like to say, I don't like to solve the puzzle until I have all the pieces. So I'll hustle toward information, but I'll set a fence on timeline because depending on what the volatility is. So, you know, I'll hustle on finding data, but I won't leave that for weeks. It's like, depending on the urgency, it's like, okay, in the next 24 hours, what can I find out, you know, from our company, how people are going, then just make a call based on what's in that present moment. So once we're doing that, we're going in that flow and depending how long the volatility is lasting, I'll tend to steady state it. So like during the Melbourne long five month lockdown, what I thought was going to be four weeks quickly became evident it was going to be 16, 20 weeks. Um, and it was actually going, okay, this is normal for an unforeseeable time. I actually had to flatline it because I was just going through these peaks and troughs and it was just too emotionally unsustainable. And so that's when I started running because I was just going, well, running is a great forced pause. And I, my mate said to me on a Zoom chat, he was kind of like, well, running sucks at the beginning and it's really painful. And all you can think about is how much pain you're in if you don't run regularly and you're only seeing in front of you. But after you do it a bit, what you'll realize is you start to see around you and actually becomes almost this meditative thing. It's weird because you're actually still running and you're running further but you're actually enjoying it and thinking clearer and you're not just seeing what's in front of you. I almost wanted to flip the volatility to that where it starts as like the running and pain and flip it to more steady state. And so the running is like an active physical reminder of that. So, I mean, that's, those are my high level tips on how we manage the volatility. That shows a very conscious approach to dealing with the situation. You talked about that before, that self-awareness. So you're aware that okay, you're aware of the situation because you've got your data. And I love that concept of put a deadline on your data because so many business owners and particularly in, in my group that I work with, it's, it's like, okay, what you need to do is you need, to, you need to do this. And then a month later, two months later, they still haven't done it. And like, oh, why? Yeah. Oh, I still need a bit more information. It's like, well, just get the information. It's not that hard, <laughs> yeah. but just get it, make a decision and move forward because You'd get in this paralysis because, and I know that with me, I did a, one of those Colby, you know, tests a few years ago. There's, that measures kind of how you action things. And I've got an eight out of 10 on data. And I used to think I was procrastinating on stuff because I'd wait, wait, wait. And then at some point, because I had a six or a seven or something on a fast start, I would just go. It's like, why don't I just go in the first place? What's stopping me? What I realized is I need to get data more quickly. And once I've got the data, I get to my eight, I can take action. And I think most people like that. They're being hamstrung because they don't have enough information and they're also taking way too bloody long. If you immerse yourself in a, in a subject to get the data quickly, 
and you will get much clearer on it much more quickly. And then as an entrepreneur, you need to make a conscious decision from there. But hearing that awareness of your own state and, you know, that, that concept of how you're looking at running and, and being a runner myself, yeah, I find it very meditative as well. That's that first sort of 500, 750 meters where it's like, oh, I really didn't want to run this morning. But then after that, I'd forget that I'm actually running. Like I'm actually, yeah. I'll get to the end. I'm like, oh, six Ks already. Well, how did that happen? And it's amazing because you're actually still making progress. Like you're still making progress, but you're not, you're not even thinking about it, which is unbelievable. Absolutely. All right, you running fools. We're only at V. We've still got Uka to go. So let's do a quick, okay, <laughs> one minute per letter. Uncertainty. I think we've covered that. Uncertainty is can't find the information, right? The information's not available. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to do something. Complexity. I think you, we already touched on that when we were talking about, you know, moons and rivers and everything else. And ambiguity, because I think this is one of the key challenges for entrepreneurs. I think it's a really big problem in business. And that's everyone in the organization being aligned with what you think and where you're going and your ability to get everyone on board. What do you think are some really important lessons that you've learned about communication and making sure everyone's heading in the same direction? And have you got experience where you've seen that come apart, where You've been surprised that people are doing something. You're like, where did that idea come from? They're like, well, that's what you said. No, well, I didn't say that. A hundred percent. I mean, at the size we are now, so much of it is clarity and dealing with ambiguity and communication. So much of the leadership, my leadership role is that actually. It's, it's not just coming up with the answer, but then communicating it to different stakeholders in a different way. How I tend to approach it is uh, I like building mental models. I'm a very visual person. So I tend to categorize the stakeholders and I say stakeholders, I mean, that's your, your customers. We actually have shareholders in our business. So your shareholders, your managers, you know, different layers and go, okay, what does this decision mean for them? And how do they like to be communicated with as an individual person? Because everyone's different. Some people like the, the email, the handbook. Some people like videos. Some people like phone calls. And generations are often different. And so kind of doing a decision tree on, okay, this is where we're going. These are my pegs. So I like to say these are my stakes in the ground, like the must. I've got to get this across, get these aspects across. And then these are kind of, I'm open to what they've got to say as well. So I tend to involve them in the process when it's only a 70% decision, not 100% yet. And then I'll do stakeholder conversations so that or communication and always opt for a feedback loop in that aspect. So it sounds like a big process. It actually becomes quite intuitive when you've got layers in the organization. So my questions are always, you know, what's important to them? How does this impact them? How does this decision make their life better? How does it make their life harder? And what are my pegs in the ground? And how do they like to be communicated with? And so I'll do that at every every layer in our company. So there's probably only, it sounds like a lot, but it's actually probably only five key stakeholders. I think a lot of leaders forget that feedback loop. They come up with 100% where they want to yeah, go. Yeah. And, it's, and it's a 100%. tell. They just tell everyone. And, and it might be the best idea and the best plan on the planet. But the fact that there wasn't the engagement and the feedback loop immediately disengages people. Like a psychological response. It's like, ah, I wasn't involved in that. That now becomes change. Now I'm anxious. I'm off. Yeah, I always say like to our managers, everyone who's involved in your decision or impacted by it should see their fingerprints on it. Otherwise, you're just not going to get buy-in. You're going to get actually, you're just going to get resistance for the sake of resistance because they weren't collaborated with, you know, and it's hard during crisis to do that. And during, you know, volatile times, but you can still do it and somewhat quickly. And in a crisis, people tend to be a bit more gracious, I've found, you know, with that. I think, Ben, that talks to the point you said before when I asked about the qualities of uh, entrepreneurs and you said clarity. I mean, 
clarity in all levels, clarity, and as, you say, as you're saying, when it comes to the team, how does it affect them? How does it involve them? What's the ultimate outcome we're looking to get? We're talking about the whole VUCA element, you know, the ability to find the information that's going to give you clarity. You know, I mean, if it, everything's got the bloody fog and the mist everywhere, how the hell do you know where you're going or where anyone else is, what they're doing? Because you just can't see it. And that clarity is going to f- clear the air and allow you to move forward. So it's awesome. But I have one more question before we uh, wrap it up though, which is you've got a very self-aware and, and you know, humble approach about you and energy about you. And you would have developed a, a view of the world as well as going through the, the, your business journey as well. What's one key thing that you've learnt in that journey that you would take back and teach to a younger version of yourself? Oh, such a good question. If I were to distill it to one, it would be be curious and active, actively pursue curiosity. Yeah, all of us are smarter than one of us. That's something I've I've definitely learned through mistakes along the way. You know, I definitely was the, the guy that would come up with the 100% idea and see communication as convincing everyone to agree with me <laughs> rather than being actually taking on a curious posture. And kind of going, oh, this is what I'm thinking. This is my thought balloon. I'll float it in the air. Feel free to pop it. You know, like I want to hear from you. I want to make it. And 100% of the time, it's been a better outcome hearing from everyone involved. So that's probably the one thing I would tell my younger self because I was definitely not that kind of person. Absolutely love that. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development, and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. Ben, really, really appreciate your time today. It's been an incredible conversation. Boo, it's great always to jump on and have these very different and interesting yeah, conversations. And you, you look like Rainbow Bright or something before. You had a rainbow on your face for a while there from your window. <laughs> I got it. It's a dad joke. I get it. Yeah, it's, I got it. <laughs> We're all dads here. So uh, yeah, we, we can all just cringe and pretend to laugh at it. So it's all good. But uh, thank you again, Ben. Really, really appreciate you taking the time today and uh, sharing a bit of your story with uh, with all of our listeners. Thanks for having me, Sean. And Boo. Awesome. This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of The Few. We'll see you next week.